Thank you, Don and Edwina. And uh, Sebi, you did a great job today. Thanks for that. His first time reading God's Word, so it's an encouragement. And yes, it was a good, um, it was a good conference yesterday and Friday night. We had some uh, great results. I thought people were challenged uh, to live uh, further for the Lord. And uh, I think there was, because we were able to look at one subject so in depth, we've been able to come away with a greater knowledge about that subject now and how it relates to us. So praise God for that. And uh, that video, if anyone wants to see it, you didn't have, hasn't had a chance to, to watch it, uh, we have a copy of it, so if you'd like to borrow it, uh, let us know, and we can give you a copy of that as well. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, as we continue our look at the Lord's Prayer, and today will be the final instalment in this particular series, which is, which is great, because I'm going to be out of action for a few weeks, so... This is the, um, the, the final verse we're looking at. So God's got a way of, uh, of wrapping things up nicely. But also, if you look at the subject uh, that we looked at over this past weekend, actually dovetails beautifully into that as well. Uh, turn with me to uh, verse 9, and we'll read to verse 15. And we'll start to see what the Lord has for us today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's, uh, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your goodness. We thank you for all good things which come down from your throne, for your mercy morning, for the grace which you extend to us to help us to live and, and save our souls. We thank you for the patience that you have with us as we grow and make mistakes. We thank you for the leading of your spirit in our lives and we thank you for the advocacy of your son who now resides in heaven, the right hand of your throne, Lord, interceding for us each and every day. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the fellowship that we have here, for the ministries that you have begun. I pray that all these things would give you the glory. But today I ask that you would be with me as I attempt to share this word that you have given to me with these, my brothers and sisters here. Father, may I speak clearly. May your spirit be speaking through me and always hide me behind your cross because it's you we want to see. Father, may the name of our Lord and our Saviour be lifted up in this place today. And may your name be honoured, Lord. Um, in all things that we do. May we go out into this world seeking to glorify you in every, every area of our lives. We thank you once again for this time. We ask these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. One of my favourite hymns, one of my favourite, favourite hymns is He Leadeth Me. He Leadeth Me. You all know that hymn. It's beautiful. I love not just the the, the tune, but the words. And the words go, he, he leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whatever I do, wherever I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Today's verse we're looking at is Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um, we have been blessed with the study that we've, uh, that we've had over yesterday and, uh, and Friday night with the movie as well. The movie was kicked off a number of, uh, of questions uh, about being a disciple and what it meant. And we looked at uh, and one of the, the, the questions that we asked ourselves at the big, very beginning of the, um, of the, uh, the conference was, uh, is a Christian meant to be a disciple? Because we know the disciples followed Jesus during his earthly life, but is a Christian today meant to be a disciple? Are there two different things? Do we have an option? Can you be a Christian without necessarily following the Lord as a disciple on this earth? And we looked at a, a few things and we, uh, we looked at it a few scripture verses, I think. We spent most of uh, Saturday looking at scripture and comparing scripture with scripture. And we looked at it from three different angles. We looked at it from 
while Jesus was walking the earth during his earthly ministries and what he said about what he expected from his own disciples. We then looked at the epistles which came after when Jesus had ascended into heaven, no longer on the earth, and what the expectation was for Christians in the New Testament era, which includes us today. And then we looked at Jesus' own life as an example. And we found that the conclusion was that a Christian has to be a disciple. They are one and the same thing. They are two sides of the same coin. You can't take one without the other. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And if you go straight back to the beginning, very beginning, when the word Christian was used, the very first time it was used, does anyone know where it was used first? What city it was used? Antioch. Okay? And the Bible says that Christians didn't get, give themselves that name. Actually, did you know that, that Baptists weren't even given themselves that name? Baptists were, were given the name by other people. In, in, in a bit of a derogatory, or Anabaptists were given that in a derogatory sort of sense. And Christians weren't, didn't call themselves or label themselves Christians. The Bible teaches us in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says, And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The disciples. So the disciples and Christians, the word disciple and Christian are synonymous with each other. It was the disciples, not other, not anyone else that were called Christians. So if you call yourself a Christian today, what you're effectively saying is that I'm a disciple of Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and we'll just look at two verses that Jesus gives us with respect to being his follower. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And it says, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So if any man will come after me. Well, the call that Jesus gives today is that men and women would come after him, that they would follow him. But there's a, there's a prerequisite here that they would deny themselves, which means to put him first, which means to make him first in your life. And that's simply the story of salvation, isn't it? Because when we come to God, we understand that we have sin in our lives and we need to be saved. We can't save ourselves. There isn't anything in and of ourselves we can actually do to redeem ourselves. We can't go before God and say, God, look at all the wonderful good things that I've done. And, and, and hopefully God will say, you've done, you know, you've done more good, Frank. You've done a lot more good than you've done bad. Well, the problem is it doesn't work that way. And we know that. Because when you break a law in our society, you can't go before a judge and say to the judge, oh, judge, you know, I know I robbed the bank, but... Look at all the good things I've done in my life. The judge will say, well, you're meant to do that as part of being a citizen of this country, of this, of this city. You're meant to be doing good things. But you're not meant to be robbing a bank. So for that, I'm going to have to put you into prison. And it's exactly the same way in, a spirit, in the spiritual world. In God's kingdom, there is nothing that we can do that earns us more merit. Let me ask you a question. For those of you who have children, how much good do they have to do to earn your love? And if they do more good, do you love them more? And if they do something's bad, do you love them less? Well, God's the same way with us. He loves us regardless. The Bible says that there are consequences to pay, there are spiritual laws in place. Just as there are physical laws, and if I, if I grab a knife and whack it into, a, um, into an electric outlet, without a, without a um, what do they call those things? <laughs> without a circuit breaker or whatever else, right? I'm going to suffer the consequences of having an electric current flowing through me. It's the same thing with spiritual laws. We may not see them in our physical realm sometimes, but they exist. And God tells us they exist because he made the physical laws and the spiritual laws. And if his, spiritual laws, if his physical laws always work, then I'll guarantee you that his spiritual laws always work as well. Because he's the same God that made everything. The problem is that people like to 
pretend that the spiritual laws that he's made don't matter. That somehow they can get around these spiritual laws and not be affected. The Bible teaches that we can't. So Jesus calls us to follow him. And you follow because he's worth following. You know, the early disciples, the ones who who would follow him physically in the world, had given up, had left their homes. They became his apprentice. They would become his, his apprentices. They would become his servant. And in all things, they would seek to imitate what he did, how he spoke, what he spoke. They would seek to learn everything from him and then take on as much as they possibly could. And you know something? The Bible teaches that when they left, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking of younger men now who go into apprenticeships in our, in our society. It was a bit like an apprenticeship. But you would have to leave home and do it. You'd have to leave home and forsake everything else and say, I choose to follow that man over there because I believe he will teach me the right things. He is worth following. He's worth giving, giving everything up for. And I put my life into his hands because you know something? Once they left everything and followed him, they would have to rely on him for everything. They would have to rely on him for their food, for their shelter, for everything else. Now, the question is, can we rely on Christ? When a man, when you choose to follow Christ, when you choose to say, Lord, save me, a sinner, understand that what you're saying is, I choose to follow you and put my life, not just my earthly life, not just my eternal life, but both, but all parts of my life, into your hands. And I trust that you will look after me. The Bible says that in order to do that, you need to deny yourself. Which means don't expect that if you're following Christ or if that you've, you've trusted in the Lord to actually save you as an individual and home in heaven, that somehow you can say, oh, thanks for doing that. Thanks. You know, I really appreciate that you've saved me. Now I'm just going to go ahead and just live my own life. It doesn't work that way. The one who has been given salvation and given grace and shown mercy and love and forgiveness and has, been impl- and, and, and has the Holy Spirit implanted into their hearts and has been given a new life, a new nature, can't but help but follow, can't help but love what he's done. And if you've had no change along those lines in your life, the question you need to ask yourself this morning before you leave this place is, am I really a Christian? Am I really a follower? If there is no fruit in my life, what makes me think that I'm actually saved right now? Because you can't help but change. This is not by our own effort. Not by our excitement. Not by stirring ourselves up in some sort of religious frenzy here. This is all about what he's done to us and for us. The Bible says to take up your cross and follow him. To take up your cross. In those days, and I thought Kyle in that that movie put it excellently, the cross today is almost like an artistic thing. It's a fashion. It's a fashion symbol that we wear around our necks. We have it hanging around the place. Pure and simply, the the cross is an instrument of death. If Jesus was, was killed in our culture today, let's say Jesus came in our day, how would they kill him? They'd find a way. Maybe they'd do it by electric chair. Maybe we'd have little electric chairs hanging around our necks. That's how bad it was. You would identify what people were doing in those days because we don't, we don't see crosses with people hung on them today. We don't see people hanging lifeless there, put up there as an exhibition for everyone to see that they had defied the Romans. We don't see that. How easy would it be for you to carry a cross around your neck if there were crosses lined up with people down the streets? It wouldn't be easy. But yet today we do it so flippantly. We see people with crosses on TV doing the most perverse things, identifying themselves with the death of our Saviour. Let me ask you, do we honestly, look? when we look at the cross, do we see death? Because that's what it's all about. The Bible says that we are to come and die with him. Die. And death is never an easy thing. But Jesus says, I want you to take up your cross daily. 
die every day and follow me. Jesus also tells us in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. They hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So pure and simple. If you're a sheep, if you are a lamb that's being led by the shepherd, by the great shepherd of our souls, you will follow. Because you understand and hear his voice. If you don't hear his voice, you aren't one of his sheep. And you're going after someone else. A disciple is a follower of Christ. And for us, the answer to whether we are genuine disciples is critical because it will determine whether we are really genuine Christians or not. If God is your heavenly Father and Jesus is the Lord of your life, your master, your shepherd, then he will lead you in this life. Put and cast all your cares on him. You can do that. How does God lead us? Well, God leads us through his written word. We have the Bible with us, and God uses that to lead us in the right direction. The Bible says that he also leads us through his Holy Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God within you now, he will give you direction in your life. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Actually, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Sorry about that. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Do you wonder whether you're a child of God this morning? Well, the answer to that is simply, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For as many that are not led by the Spirit of God, they are not the sons of God. If you're not led by the Spirit of God this morning, if he isn't directing your life and your path, if you don't listen out for him, by definition you're not. And you cannot be led by the Spirit of, of God until you've received the Spirit of God. And you cannot, be, you cannot receive the Spirit of God until you've yielded yourself, repented of your sin and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. So what are we asking the Lord to do? We're saying, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Do you remember the, the previous verses, the verses that were coming before? They were asking God for food, for bread. They asked God for forgiveness. They were an admittance that we are dependent on God for all things. And this is the same. This is nothing different. What it's basically saying is, Lord, I understand that if I'm left to my own devices... If I'm left to my own knowledge and wisdom and power, I'll go astray. I'll get lost. I'll fall into a ditch and I'll be lost. It means that what you're saying is you're admitting you can't, you don't know the direction which you need to go. And you need God to be telling you where to go. The Bible says, and you notice it says, lead us not into temptation. Well, turn to James with me. James chapter 1, verse 12. And we'll look at a little bit about temptation. James chapter 1, verse 12 to 15 says, Blessed is the man... Sorry, I've just lost my position. I'm not used to using an iPad behind this, uh, this thing over here. Sorry, we ran out of ink last night in our printer, so I'm using an iPad at the moment. It's not my chosen form. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. 
Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So, what's James saying? The Bible says, lead me not into temptation. And James says, well, God never leads anyone into temptation. What it's basically saying is, Lord, please don't let me be drawn into something that I don't have the ability to handle. Don't allow me to be drawn away by my own lust. Help me to stay focused on you. The problem is that, as James teaches us, that the problem isn't necessarily out there. The problem is almost always in here. And the problem is, it's what's in here that is trying to drag me away into certain directions that it wants. The problem with Christians having been led is that it's their own flesh that often leads them. I mean, the world, let's put the world aside. The world lives by the flesh. The world has no other option but to be, to be led, dominated and controlled by the flesh. Actually, Eddie brought up an interesting point of the day. The Bible, the Bible teaches us right, that we need to resist the natural urges that we have as people. The nat- it, it, it teaches us to resist those things. And it's saying that a lot of the urges that we have as people aren't good. The world teaches us that all the natural urges that we have are actually okay and we should be chasing after them. They're, too, they're running in two different directions. The Bible teaches here, it's saying, God, don't let my flesh draw me to something. Don't let me be enticed into something because as it says here, when I'm tempted, I'm drawn away of my own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived... Then sin comes, and when sin is fully formed, it brings death. Look at it very similarly to drug addiction. Hmm? Drug addiction is a very similar type of picture that you should see when you see sin. Would you, would you ever recommend anyone to take drugs? No, you wouldn't. So the first time they take it, they've begun to sin. But the more they do it, the more it binds them and eventually will kill them. That's the same way sin is. feels great. Now, people wouldn't be drawn to do sin if it wasn't feeling good, but it feels good when you're doing it. But is it right? And God teaches us very clearly that, it, that sin is not right and as dangerous as taking drugs. So... It's saying, God, don't let me be drawn into sin. Don't let me be enticed by things that are around me because there are plenty of things in this world to entice. That's in an acknowledgement, as I've said, that I can't, Lord, I can't see two feet ahead of me. I can't see what's coming up next. And I need your sight, your vision, your wisdom to give me direction, to tell me where to put my feet next. Because sometimes the road ahead of me is very dark. And I need your light to shine on, on in front of me. That's once again where God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And God's spirit teaches us through the word where we should step. So this verse is a humble acknowledgement that I must depend on his vision, what he sees, on his wisdom. And his love for me to divert me away from the enemy's attacks and from my own weaknesses. It's an acknowledgement that up ahead, on this road ahead somewhere, there will be dangerous situations that I can't see, possibly in my immediate future. But I know that he sees perfectly well. And I trust that he knows what's, what's hanging around over there. And he'll start to direct my path to go around it. That's my trust in him. You see, life consists of a series of choices. We make choices, hundreds of them, every day. 
with each individual choice that we make, we find ourselves in a slightly different or new position. Sometimes when we make a choice, it's a huge choice, and we find ourselves in a completely different situation with different circumstances. But every choice we make slightly alters or dramatically alters the path that we take. And then when you find yourself in a different situation, then the next choice I make will either go further out again or bring it back in again. You see, choices culminate. Every choice creates a different circumstance. We can't see more than one step ahead of us. But God sees all the options that I will take ahead of me. He knows which choice I will take and helps to guide me along that way. Because of the complexity of our lives, we struggle to see ahead of us. We make choices on the fly. We don't rely on God's truth to make those choices. And then when we find ourselves in a ditch, we find our relationships broken around us. We find ourselves in a situation where we say, how did I get into this? Well, you know the answer, really. We got ourselves into it. Because we made silly and stupid choices. We were enticed away with our flesh and our flesh says, I want this. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. That when you begin to listen to your flesh and you know in your conscience that it's actually wrong, but you think to yourself, I can get, around, I can get away with this. I'll get back eventually. It'll work out. No, no one will notice. I can just take a couple of steps out that way. I'll be fine. I won't do it again. And then you find out you're in the same situation again. And then what you, what's, what's, your, what's your natural response? No one will notice. I just got to take a couple of steps out that way. It won't make much of a difference. And before long, you're in a situation that you're in a world of hurt and pain. And some of us lived that way for years in this pain. We find ourselves so far away from God and so far away from where we want to be as people, we live miserable lives not knowing how to get back on the track. And we can't. How can you get back on the track when you're in the middle of nowhere and darkness is all around you? But the Bible says that he knows the way back. He knows the path to take. And if we trust in him, and he will lead us step by step back to where we need to be. We're often very fickle as people. We often look at the step and we say, oh, how many steps do I need to take to get to there? Huh? How many steps do I need to go sideways here? Then I've got to turn left. Then I've got to turn right. Look at my complicated path back there. God is taking me in such a, such a long route just to get to, to achieve one thing over there. But what you didn't notice is all the landmines that you just diverted. All the landmines you missed. God saw them all, but you didn't. Remember that. Growing in grace, growing in, in love, and growing into maturity as a Christian, not something you do overnight. It's something that's done step by step by step with faithfulness and care and love. God has given us the master strategy for our lives. He's given us a manual with, with strategic and tactical things in there to help us not lose track and not get killed along the way, which leads us into life and not into death. But every choice that I make wisely leads me to growth and godliness. Every choice that I make without wisdom, without God's leading, leads me to sin to temptation and destruction. The Bible makes that very clear. We can trust God with the path that we take. We can trust him that he won't lead us into places that we can't handle. But we can ask God to deliver us from evil. Now, what does that mean? Deliver me from evil. What, he's going to deliver me like a parcel? He's going to wrap me up and put me in a, a UPS truck and, and deliver me to where I have to go. This deliverance here is, talk, is, is much to do with rescue me, save me, get me out of here, get me out of this situation, stop me from, save me from this situation and from those who would seek to harm me, including what's in here. 
Deliver me to, is to rescue me from the evil that surrounds me and desires to consume me like a lion. Evil is like a cancer. It infects and grows and in the end it kills its host. Can't help it. Cancer grows, it needs to feed, and as it feeds, it kills other, other parts of the body and, as, and after a while, it kills its own host. The viruses are very much the same. The virus will continue to, to grow inside a host until it kills it. The Christian understands the danger of sin, and it's like that, and relies on the love and the mercy of God to rescue us from its grip, from its grasp. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Look at this as a guide for you as a disciple. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I've already stated previously that, that the Lord's Prayer is all about coming to him in a humble obedience, a recognising your position before him. Each request that we have of God, whether for food, sustenance, forgiveness, deliverance, whatever else it is, is openly declaring, I need you in every area of my life. And I need to rely on your spirit's leading. God, I recognise my own weakness and my own vulnerability, and I look to you to sustain me, to redeem me, to deliver from this world and from myself. I trust in the awesome power of God, and that means that I, I can cast all my cares upon him. That's why Christians should be the most peaceful, humble, loving people in this world. You have a God who is non-stoppable. No one can stop him. No one can resist him. He does what he wants, when he wants. And he loves us more than we can even imagine. Tell me, you can't cast your cares upon him. If we have cares, if we have things that are consuming, it's because we want to keep them and we can't give them to him. We don't want to. But even though he says, cast all your care upon me, he still says to us, be sober. Be sober. Be alert. Don't be half asleep. Be alert. Be vigilant. Be on the lookout. It says because we haven't... I always get this word wrong. Adversary or adversary? Adversary. Who seeks to destroy men and to consume them. That's what the devil wants to do. When a person calls on God to deliver them, it's asking God, he's asking God to save them. And salvation only comes from the Lord. When a person receives salvation through the blood of Christ, it is a one-time event sealed in eternity. Do you believe that? When a person comes to the Lord and asks for salvation, it's a one-time event. Something incredible happens in the universe. All your sin, all your debts, all your, all your problems have been taken by God in one fell swoop. And he saves you. And, and from his perspective, you're already saved and with him. But the amazing thing is that salvation doesn't just stop there. Salvation continues for our whole lives. And God continues to save us every day of our lives. And this thing we call uh, this walk with the Lord is an opportunity for us to grow in him and see his saving power in our lives. And then that we're able to show to other people around us. Can you imagine? Imagine if God saved you and took you straight away. Imagine that for a moment. So God saves a person and takes them away to be home with him. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? We'd love that. But how would, how would anyone else just get to see what Jesus is like? How would they find out about the love, the mercy, the grace of our Saviour unless it's actually showing through us? That's how God displays his love to this world, in us. 
When God delivers in the Bible, though, when God rescues in the Bible, I want you to understand something as well, though. He normally expects obedience. He expects obedience. So he'll, he'll tell you, okay, Frank, you need to go two paces forward. And then I want you to turn two paces to the right. Now, what do I do as a person? Do I go three paces forward, thinking I can actually dodge the, the, the detour that he wants me to take? That's what we do as Christians. Christians are notorious in our culture for wanting to take the shortcut for everything. We don't want to do it God's way because we think it's too hard and arduous. So we want to do it our own. We want to create our own path. That Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way, is no way. That's no way. That's the only, the only way that's going, to, that's going to lead is to death. But if you take God's way, you will lead, you will walk in life. So you have to obey when he's telling you to do something. And that means obeying what the Bible says. If you can't obey the simple instructions of the Bible, don't expect to, to live a happy, fulfilled and, and, and uh, triumphant life in this world as a Christian. Expect to be a, lead a miserable life as a Christian because you're stepping on one landmine after another as you're going along. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but with the temptation, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. God will not allow us to be tempted more than we can handle. He will make sure of that. Trust him on it. But if you find yourself in a situation where you have willingly gone outside of his path, expect to be in a situation that you possibly can't handle. God hasn't led you there. Don't expect that where you are today, that God has led you here. Where you are in your life, don't blame it on God, please. Don't say, God, God brought me here. God didn't bring you here. You are here because of the choices you have made. And if we're honest with ourselves, how many of those choices are because of our own will rather than his? Do I believe in free will? Yeah, I actually do. God doesn't force us to take the path. God doesn't force you to take the steps. God says, these are the steps. It's up to you to take, to take the right direction. Now, finally, it says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This prayer starts, it commences with God and it ends with God. Notice verse 9, Matthew chapter 6, it says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Don't ever be confused about this very one thing. Your prayers are not really about you. They're not about you. They're about him. They're a doorway for him to be able to answer your prayers, for him to glorify himself through you. It's not about you, not about me. When we pray to him and he answers those prayers, what, am I going to get the glory? Because I prayed for it. He gets the glory. He glorifies himself through our prayers. It's not about us. When we pray, we should always pray with him in mind, with his glory, his honour in mind, not ourselves. If you pray with the only end that, for example, oh, oh Lord, we need to pray for Pastor Frank because he's having a heart operation. Oh, yeah, he may answer that prayer. But why are you praying that prayer? Oh, I know you love me, maybe. But in the end, it's about him. It's not about me. It's about him. And if he chooses to answer that prayer, he gets the glory. He should get the glory. Should, our mind should always go back to him that he was the one who did that thing. It's all about him. Your life isn't your own, but it belongs to him. Your purposes, everything you do in your life should be about him. 
It's not about me. It's not about my will. It's not about my life, my word, my thoughts, my actions, my path, my career, my progress, my potential as a person. It's got nothing to do with any of that because all that is fluff, nothing, rubbish. It's all about him, by him, and for him. This book that we hold in our hands this morning, you've read it, haven't you? It's a good book to read. It's got some good stories in there. Do you think it's a book about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Moses and Abraham and Joshua and King David and King Solomon and, and all these different people in there? Do you think it's a story about all those people? Do you think all those stories are an end in of themselves with those people? No. It's not about those people. Those people were just blessed to be included in that book. That book from beginning to end is about him. It's about him. It's about how he's dealt with a rebellious and sinful people and how much love he has shown us. It declares his character from beginning to end. It speaks about the saviour who would bring into this world. It's all about him. It's nothing really about us. We just played the part in it of certain characters. And most of those characters weren't good at all. In fact, none of the characters were good he had to carry all the characters we think that are good in the Bible, he had to carry them through. All the, all the characters that are bad in the Bible refuse to be carried through. The whole book is about him. We're just blessed that we can actually look at that book and actually learn about him and, and gain from the knowledge in that book. Is it any wonder... This Bible teaches us that we will spend the rest of our eternity glorifying him. How long is your life? 60, 70, 80, 90. You want to reach 100? If you reach 100, you've done very, very well. But guess what? There's 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million, 10 million, 100 million, a trillion. 10 trillion, 100 trillion, 1,000 trillion years. And I haven't started. After. What on earth do you think this life is about? What on earth do you think that you're doing with your life for these few measly years? That's what the Bible says, to redeem the time because the days are evil. We should be giving every part of our lives to him. If you don't do it now, when do you think you're going to do it? After you die? The Bible says there is one life to live, one. And after this, the judgment. If you have 30 years, 40 years, 50 or even 100, you need to make the most of that time there because what you do in this life here will determine what you do in the next. This prayer is about him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He was called Mighty, Wonderful, Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Lily of the Valley, the Bright and Morning Star. It's about him. It's not about me. Anything that I have that's good comes from him, not from me. Any potential that I have is given to him, given to me by him. That's why Jesus says, listen to this. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Do you understand the purpose that we've been called to? To live our lives for him. I have nothing to offer him. Nothing. I have nothing that I can say to him, God, look how wonderful, look what I've done for you. 
He doesn't need anything I've got to give. He doesn't. He has it all. Whether I think I'm giving him something or not, he has it all. I have nothing to offer him. But he allows me to have a relationship with him that I didn't deserve. And he says, come and follow me. Trust me. I'll take care of your soul. I'll take care of all your needs. I'll take care of everything you you need in your life, in this life and the next. Just trust me. I've got all the power. Don't worry. I can see the road ahead. There is nothing that can stop me. There is no one that can get to you when you're in my care. Don't worry. My son has got you in his hands. And I've got you in my hands too. There is no one who can take you away. Our lives are simply meant to be a reflection of his glory. Like little mirrors in this world. The sun shines on them and we can reflect and show other people, look at the sun. Look at that. Ever done that? We are. That's all we're called to be. The mirror has no light in and of itself. It's simply called to point in the right direction. We've been asked to do the same. We've been asked to reflect his glory, his perfection, his character, everything about him. What we are called to be is to be those perfect mirrors about who he is. So our lives, if we are really meant who we are meant, we really are who we are meant to be, we will eventually speak like him, act like him, love as he loves, care as he cares. Our thoughts will be his thoughts because we're perfect reflectors. Most of our lives, though, we're not perfect reflectors. We're dirty mirrors. And if we allow some of that light to get through to other people, we think we're doing a great job. But we're not. There's plenty to go. There's plenty for us to do. You compare yourselves to the lives of the apostles, the disciples and those people. When I look at that, I see myself as so far behind, so far to go. But that's the beauty of the journey as well, isn't it? that even though we may be far behind, God still has grace and says, come on, pick up, walk with me. That's the beauty of being a Christian, is that you get to walk with God. I remember someone saying to me once that life is is a journey to God. And I said, no, life's not a journey to God. What a lonely journey that is. How am I going to get there? How am I going to get to him? I can't get to him. I don't know the path to take. But the beautiful thing about being a Christian, the beautiful thing about having a saviour is that he leads you every step of the way. And in, in saying that, Jesus was the perfect disciple. Jesus was the perfect. The way he lived his life is a perfect example of how we should be as disciples and Christians in this world. He did the will of the Father, not his own, the Bible says. He denied himself. He depended on the power of the Holy Spirit through the Father. The Bible says he studied and meditated on the word of God. He spent time alone in prayer. He loved others sacrificially. He gave himself up to serve and love other people. He proclaimed the gospel and called people to repent and turn back to God. Say, follow him. I know. Look, listen, follow me because I'm following the one in whom I know there's life. He made disciples and he spent time helping them to grow. That should be our model for how we live our lives. These are all the characteristics that he expected of his disciples and he was doing them perfectly himself. And So whether it's his love, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his kindness, his gentleness, holiness, his endurance, his persistence, his integrity, his peace, all these qualities should be possessions of us, given to us by him. Thine is the kingdom. He is the rightful king. Thine is the power. There is no power in this universe that can stop him. There is no one who can come against him. He predicts the future and no one can change it. You like that? He predicts the future. So if you you were able to predict the future a few days ahead, someone could come and stop that, couldn't they? God predicts the future hundreds and thousands of years into the, in, into the future and there's no one that can stop him or change his plans. 
Not even one of the most powerful angels that he created. No devil in hell can actually change the plan that God has put in place. As hard as they try, as invisible as they are, as much as they think they're working in the background, they can't stop one thing that he's actually done. They can't stop one prediction that he's done. If he says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, guess where he was going to be born? In Bethlehem. There was nothing the devil could do to stop it. Every prediction that God made in the Bible has come true. And there are still some that haven't been realised yet. And they have to do with you and I, most of those. The question is whether we trust him. So let me close with a proverb. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, and I'll leave you with this, because I believe if you meditate upon this, you'll understand what it means to be a Christian and a true disciple of the Lord. And the funny thing is, enough, it's actually in the Old Testament in Proverbs. So let's read this together. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. I'll read to verse 12. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lead not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honour the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thine presses shall burst out with new wine. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a son, even as a son in whom he delighteth. Keep that with you for this week. Keep it with you. Meditate on that portion of scripture alone. There is so much in there. I could probably preach a couple of months. Meditate on that. God bless you. Thank you.